Hello everyone, Namaste. I'm music composer Ricky Cage, Grammy Award winner and United Nations Goodwill Ambassador. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Yeah. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. And on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with musician, composer, and environmental advocate, Ricky Gage. Stay tuned. So it really should be every day, but for at least conventional purposes, we just celebrated Earth Day this past weekend, and it's a healthy reminder to all of us to think responsibly about our daily impact on the environment and on our collective future. And speaking of impact in the future, thank you so much for listening to this and sharing it with your friends and family, for putting in a kind review or rating, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaynandekar. So I think of music as one of the ultimate vehicles for human connection. But you know, it really wasn't until I began listening to Indian musician and composer Ricky Gage and learning more about him that I realized the power of music as a celebration of humanity, goodwill, peace, action, and possibility. Ricky's professional career started by making award-winning commercial music in advertising, learning and gathering influence from virtually every genre of musical art. He soon began composing for film and television, and in 2015, his album Winds of Sonsata won a Grammy for Best New Age Album. Now, for someone who was born in North Carolina and finished training as a dental surgeon, the path has been winding, but the focus of his art is unmistakably an extension of his personality and beliefs, as he considers each piece of music to be a personal reflection. Ricky's music and success have been tightly woven with environmental advocacy. He serves as a UN Global Goodwill Ambassador and stewards an incredible awareness for conservation and advancing environmental consciousness, seeing humanity as one family inhabiting our planet. His service is through his living example and continues, of course, through his music, fusing many cultural influences from around the world to soothe, uplift, enlighten, and inspire millions of listeners. With his album Divine Tides, in collaboration with drummer Stuart Copeland, Ricky's now won two more Grammy Awards for Best New Age Album in 2022 and Best Immersive Audio Album in 2023. It was terrific for him to join me for a conversation, and since he's an active performer touring for audiences worldwide, this is what we started to chat about. Is it possible for a Ricky Cage performance these days or, or even aspiring to be? Is it possible uh, at all for performers who have thousands of listeners, millions of listeners, a worldwide audience to in fact have a carbon neutral live performance? So the thing about uh, being carbon neutral, is, uh, especially when it comes to a live performance, is that it's, it's just not possible to have an eco-friendly concert or a concert that is truly carbon neutral. Yeah. Uh, simply because nothing can be carbon neutral nowadays. Mm. Whenever anybody says that an event or a concert is carbon neutral, there is a little bit of greenwashing involved in that. Sure. Uh, simply because, uh, you know, it involves a lot of offsetting of carbon footprint uh, yeah. through tree plantations or investment in renewable energy. And we do do that for every single concert of mine or every single travel of mine. 
but at the same time, you know, it's it's about just keeping your conscience clear about, uh, you know, in whatever way you can. Because, you know, concerts have got a huge energy usage. There's flight travel involved. There sure. is uh, a huge amount of lighting. There is sometimes there is use of generators and things like that. So yeah. it, it's impossible to be carbon uh, neutral in the way that we've uh, built our systems around ourselves. It becomes very difficult for anything nowadays, like, you know, even being born uh, to be carbon neutral. Yeah. So I guess... Uh, I mean, even this podcast to some degree has... Uh, a footprint in that way not too. to some degree to a large degree because yeah. at the end of the day you've got data centers you've got uh, internet usage electricity usage all of these things basically are huge on carbon footprint if you have to calculate it in, in fact if you have to go in depth into it the clothes that we are wearing right now sure uh the the cotton t-shirt that i'm i mean the cotton shirt that i'm wearing right now has got a water footprint of at least about five thousand or six thousand liters of water yeah so that's the way it is, you know, that uh, the way that we've built our systems around us, it's pretty much impossible not to have an impact on the environment. But one can try and offset our carbon footprint uh, in the most responsible way possible. Mm. But nevertheless, even offsetting also is a form of greenwashing. So yeah. the best we can do is that try to ensure that whatever we do is is uh, not just, you know, not just responsible to the environment in the way of offsetting our carbon footprint and you know, and reducing a carbon footprint in the maximum amount uh, possible, uh, but also, uh, you know, has a larger impact in terms of messaging. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, that in future, in uh, the, I mean, the future of this particular podcast could be that, you know, that more and more people adopt a more uh, environmental friendly lifestyle. Yeah, boy, I, I wish I could just grab a megaphone and uh, yell loudly, uh, which would probably have much less of a carbon footprint than the electronic things. And I'd have to perhaps wear less clothes, but uh, but definitely, you know, being conscious of it. And I not think wear awareness. less clothes, just rewear your clothes. Not rewear my clothes. clothes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, first off, of course, uh, congratulations, uh, hearty congratulations on Grammy number three. I mean, uh, an amazing accomplishment for sure. I, I imagine that the accolades and achievements are, are wonderful and definitely affirming. It certainly must offer more confidence and scope for the platform and the message and the uh, the motivations behind, you know, how you so powerfully talk about uh, climate consciousness and, and even environmentalism. Do the awards at all alter or even change or not change for that matter, the personality of the music or even the motivation at all? At least in my case, it does not. Uh, yeah. Because uh, there are always two ways to look at awards. One way to look at awards is, you know, through a lot of vanity where uh, one can... Uh, feel that you know that they're the best and they're better than other people or better than their fellow nominees and things like that that's not how I choose to look at awards so for me my music always has a very strong message either a message of the environment or a message of social impact you know or a message of kindness uh, and uh, I believe that uh, every single award that I win is a platform for me to do bigger and better things and to collaborate with more and more people spread the message further and wider because uh, a lot of people say that uh, that I'm not at all into awards or I do not like awards, but I do like awards because I believe that awards are important uh, to uh, to give you that platform, as I just mentioned, to yeah. uh, uh, to try to spread your message and your music further and wider. And that's uh, so for me, every time I win an award, it's all about, you know, that how do I use this platform that I've been given? How do I use this new audience that I've been given to spread this message uh, that I have further and wider? Perhaps uh, the fuel that's required, in fact, to make that message scale. You're 
at least uh, a terrific collaborator, but you're a collaborator on this Grammy-winning you know, set of uh, accomplishments, of course, Stuart Copeland. I read that he said that making the record with you had been a unique adventure in both music and in divine awareness. And I'm curious about one thing. What did you particularly learn about your own music and even your own awareness in the divine in that same kind of journey? So divine is a very vague word. And uh, that's the reason why I like uh, that word a lot, uh, yeah. because it could have a little bit of a spiritual connotation. But uh, for me as a person, myself, I'm not at all spiritual, nor do I believe in God. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a complete 100% atheist. And uh, I do not believe in anything supernatural or anything above uh, what we can understand, uh, you know, what we can understand. And uh, what we do not understand, I just, uh, you know, leave that to being something that I just do not understand. That's yeah. about it. But uh, I do understand the whole spiritual element uh, because a lot of people tell me that they find my music to be very spiritual or they find me to be a spiritual person. But uh, how I define spirituality is very simple that sometimes uh, when you are faced with something that is extremely beautiful or something that you just cannot define, uh, it could be beautiful music. Uh, that happens to me all the time where I listen to something which is extremely beautiful and I'm very overwhelmed by the beauty of the music that sometimes I get tears in my eyes or sometimes I'm, uh, as they say, transported to a different plane and mm. or sometimes I see a beautiful sunset or a, or a beautiful scenery or a beautiful mountain. And, uh, you know, and my primitive brain just cannot, uh, you know, uh, is so overwhelmed by the beauty of that scenery or the beauty of that art that one cannot just uh, uh, attribute it to something that is that is explainable. It's something that is completely inexplainable. And that is many a times attributed that overwhelming experience, that overwhelming emotion that yeah. we do not understand is sometimes attributed to being spiritual. So I believe that we as musicians are extremely successful if we have that effect on somebody. So whenever somebody tells me that they feel that my music is very spiritual, I feel that my music is successful because uh, because I've basically overwhelmed that person. So, yeah, so that's what spirituality is to me. And uh, yes, I have a, a spiritual moment very, very often when I listen to beautiful music or I see something beautiful. In this in this particular instance, is that, you know, as Stuart Copeland mentioned those things and, and certainly you share what that spirituality means to you, it, was that something you had to learn? Or is that something that you always felt very, you know, aware of, whether playing music or whether creating music or not? No, it's not something that you have to be aware of. Uh, at the end of the day, our responsibility is to just make music that, I mean, that I communicate through my music. I, you know, I think through my music. I, mm. uh, so music is just an extension of what I do. Sure. Anytime I feel strongly about something, I create music on that. If I do not feel strongly about something, I just don't create music. Yeah. So it's not like I'm waiting to be paid to make music or, you yeah. know, or a film director is asking me uh, to make music on a certain topic. So music is just an extension of me. And that's how I create my music. And if it has an effect on somebody, then I just find myself to be success successful in that particular uh, in that particular piece of music. Uh, there are obviously two ways to make music. One is uh, one is uh, creating music that is a one-size-fits-all approach, which is basically what pop music is all about and mm. what mainstream music is all about. So there uh, you are reaching to a very, very wide audience uh, of different demographics, uh, you know, put together and sure. uh, uh, trying to create entertaining music that will appeal to a whole lot of people, which is yeah. basically your pop music. And uh, the second style of music is creating music, which is more niche, music that you like yourself. 
and uh, music that uh, music that excites us as musicians and uh, you know and create that kind of music but in the, there the struggle becomes not about trying to get a mass audience to listen to it but to find that audience that actually agrees with you and that's what niche music is all about like for example a jazz musician or a or a global musician or a world musician or you know uh, or even a folk musician uh, for them it's not about you know trying to get millions and millions of people to listen to the music but it's about finding that one uh, finding that niche audience that actually loves your music and remains loyal to your music till the day you die it reminds me of one thing and this may or may not resonate and I we might come back to this in a few minutes but we as pediatricians or even physicians when we work in the outpatient we find that the you know really the greatest outpatient doctors that I've ever met are ones who are very very cognizant of what it's like to work in the hospital and those doctors who work in the hospital who I think are brilliant are ones who knows know very much what it's like to work in the in the clinic and in the outpatient setting i'm curious for you does what you just shared about kind of niche music and the focus of say uh, niche music or whether it be world music or even the instrument of spirituality that you mentioned before is it some ways really important to be conscious of the difference between what you just mentioned between niche music and say popular music or uh, music that has a slightly different appeal I don't think it's about uh, being conscious about the difference. It's just about not being delusional. That if you're creating music that you yourself uh, appreciate and you know that it's 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 very dissimilar from what is pop music and what is normally played on radio for mass audiences or on television for mass audiences, uh, then one cannot be delusional that the whole world will be listening to my music. Sure. Uh, one has to uh, one has to be realistic that. That uh, that you know that there there is uh, there is definitely an audience for your music because there will be people who agree with you and like the kind of music that you like, uh, but at the same time it's not going to be like a billion people. It's it's going to yeah. be uh, it's going to be a very loyal audience, but a, a small niche audience, and that audience will follow you forever and will wait for you to create a new piece of music or will wait for you to create a new album. Whereas when it comes to a more mainstream audience, you are the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year. You know where people are going to listen to your music for a certain period of time, and once you time out, or once you uh, zone out, or uh, once your time period is over, and the new flavor comes out, uh, you know, or the new genre of music which sort of appeals to everybody comes out, then basically your history and uh, you become a thing of the past. So that's why uh, you know niche music and music, uh, music uh, creating music from the heart has got its advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. But the biggest advantage that I cannot let go of is basically creating music that you yourself love listening to rather than creating music which is based on a brief. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's come back to our conversation with Ricky Cage. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Let's now rejoin our conversation with musician, composer, and environmental advocate, Ricky Kedge. It seems like that kind of sensibility allows for a true sort of joy in obviously creating that music. And then on top of that, hopefully makes that music timeless. I, I'm, I'm also curious about one thing. It's nearly impossible to separate themes of tradition and culture uh, from your work and, and, of course, how people feel about that, um, as you mentioned. Yet, yet each piece offers a reimagination and a reinvention, especially when working with some of your collaborators, particularly who are global and may not necessarily come from the same tradition. Are, are you naturally someone who has always sort of blended reverence for tradition with also that reinvention and reimagination, perhaps? And in, is this something that's come naturally for you from, for a long time? So I do have a tremendous amount of uh, reverence when it comes to traditions and when it comes to ancient cultures. But at the same time, it's not because of my reverence that, uh, that ancient or uh, even contemporary cultures of music finds its way into my music. It's just because I love it. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just because, you know, again, that's a natural extension of me sure. uh, as a person uh, that, it just, uh, that it just shows up in my music. And uh, that's the reason why I collaborate with uh, tribal populations all over the world. Yeah. I collaborate with, uh, with uh, traditions like Indian classical music, the North Indian forms or the South Indian forms. Um, uh, and I myself am more of a contemporary musician. Mm. But at the same time, for me, that fusion with, uh, with, uh, with traditional cultures, especially when it comes to Indian cultures, and also when it comes to African cultures, Southeast Asian, other Southeast Asian cultures, yeah. uh, even European cultures, it just feels good uh, to collaborate because these are things, uh, these are cultures and these are musical forms that I absolutely adore. Yeah. And uh, it, it just finds its way into my music. Are there particular elements of that kitsuri, if you will, that are exciting for you, whether that be thinking about Peter Gabriel or Pharrell or Fateh Ali Khan or, or any of these kind of indigenous people's music that can, can resonate quite loudly and, and perhaps even blend or even the unknowns that are out there? I guess it's just whatever I'm exposed to at that particular point in time. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what excites me at that uh, particular you know, time period. Right. Has, has making this kind of music particularly, as you mentioned, like being reverent for the tradition, but not necessarily having it completely steer or guide you, has that made you more self-aware of your own personality moods and temperatures? Has it made you more patient or maybe even more forgiving as you've particularly developed and grown as a musician? I guess it's very difficult for me to answer that question, but I guess uh, collaboration in itself, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it helps you respect other people's opinions in a huge way because many times when I'm collaborating with musicians, uh, one has to completely uh, agree that this is a 50-50% collaboration and uh, everybody's opinions matters. My opinions yeah. matter and my collaborator's opinion matters. And there are many times where I feel very strongly about something that, you know, uh, that, uh, that I really wanted in a particular way. But there has to be a sense of compromise because you know that uh, the person collaborating with you also feels strongly, but maybe in an opposing way. Yeah. So there has to be a sense, of, uh, sense of, uh, of compromise over there because you have to respect their opinions sure. and uh, you have to find a middle ground somewhere. And there are always two outcomes of this. One outcome is that uh, like you know maybe after about a year of uh, uh, of release of that particular piece of music and 
you know, and you're living with that piece of music as a released piece of music where uh, the audiences have already been exposed to that uh, piece of music multiple times, uh, you still believe that you were right. And yeah. that's also completely fine. Yeah. Because um, yeah, that's also completely fine because uh, because that's that's a learning process of uh, sure. you know of being a musician and an artist. The second outcome could be that after after uh, living with that piece of music for a very long time, you realize that you were absolutely wrong, and uh, you know, and you are looking at things from a completely different perspective. But that perspective was wrong because you were too close to that piece of art. Yeah. And uh, you know, and uh, and you could not look at things objectively. But now that you've been living with that piece of music for a while, you can look at things objectively and you can look at things uh, from a distance and you realize that, uh, you know, that uh, that your opinion in the first place was completely wrong. And this was uh, this this actually uh, going your collaborators way was actually closer to your vision yeah. uh, than uh, than having gone your own way because you arrived at that emotion that you wanted to arrive at, you know, more effectively uh, through the route that your collaborator took but you just did not know about it at the time. Right. And so so you mentioned that, you know, look, you you wait that extra time, you wait for that year, that that period, that time period. Is that something that initially in your career did you ever struggle with that? Was that something that you had to grow into a little bit? So when I started off my career, I started off doing advertising music. Yeah. So I did uh, uh, of course that was in a past life. I did more than 3,500 sure. commercials for pretty much uh, every brand imaginable and their competitor and yeah. uh, uh, there were days when I would do between two to three commercials wake up in the morning at about 7 a.m do a commercial for yeah. a client in India finish that off by about two o'clock then work for a client in uh, in Europe then uh, wrap that up by about you know, nine nine o'clock or ten o'clock in the night then work for a client in you know in the west coast of America yeah so when I believe that uh, you know working on advertising music is uh, was the best educational process when it came to music not only uh, to teach me different forms of, uh, you know, different genres of music, because every day is a different challenge and every yeah. day it, it's a different challenge in working on a completely different genre of music and a different creative professional, but also to look at your own music very objectively. Sure. Uh, because if you are getting paid a huge amount of money to create a piece of music and in a very quick time period, uh, then your client is not going to mince words uh, when they do not like the piece of music. <laughs> And when they do not like a piece of music, they're not actually critiquing the music itself, but they're critiquing your interpretation of their brief. You know? Yes. So, uh, so that's the way it is. Like, for example, if you make a piece of music for Heineken, yeah. uh, it, uh, and it's a brilliant piece of music that you made for Heineken, that same brilliant piece of music is not going to work for Mercedes-Benz. Sure. It's going to be a completely different piece of music that will work for them. And a piece of music that you make for Mercedes-Benz is not going to work for a client like Toyota. Yeah. So so basically, it's all about creating pieces of music that works for the personality of a brand. And if the brand manager feels that that piece of music is not correct for their brand, they're going to be very vocal about it. Yeah. Uh, they're not attacking the uh, the quality of music, but they're attacking the relevance of the music. Sure. So that way you end up developing a very thick skin when it comes to criticism. And you also learn not to fall in love with every piece of music that you yourself create. And you constantly evolve as a musician. You meet all these other musicians because you're working on these various genres of music. You start looking at genres of music as not being good or bad, but you start looking at, uh, you, you, I mean, rather you, you do not uh, diss genres of music saying that I don't like heavy metal music or I don't like hip hop music. Yeah. You, you start looking at all genres of music as being music itself. Right. And, uh, you know, and you start looking at just two genres of music, like, you know, good quality music and bad quality music. Yeah. 
So that's what happened with me, you know, because I did commercials for about 13 or 14 years. Yeah. And I believe that uh, uh, that is what uh, made me develop a thick skin towards criticism and understand feedback. Because sometimes, like, let's say I make a piece of music that is a meditative piece of music. Yeah. And I get feedback from somebody saying that, oh, that's a very boring music. And I realize that that person is a fan of heavy metal music. So you yeah. know that, you know that... Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, that while you re completely respect that person's opinion, you know that that person's opinion is not relevant to the music that you're creating. So you learn how to sift through criticism, respect people's opinions and understand what is uh, what is the what is the opinion that actually matters to the kind of music that you're creating and what is the, which ones are the opinions that that one has to take very, very seriously. I, I would say that that's sound advice for anybody in any in any field, for sure. And and definitely one that spells success sounds like for you, for sure. I, I want to turn to something slightly different, and that is, I'm curious from those same experiences, right? Um, developing this kind of repetitive yet important accelerator for maturing and developing and understanding what feedback is is meant to be. When you think about that same arc of, of development, when do you first remember perhaps being aware or cognizant that your music could in fact synchronize with activism and environmental consciousness. Do you remember it? Was that, was that sort of an aha moment for you at all? No. So the thing is that uh, I would definitely not call myself an activist. Uh, I'm more of an advocate. Um, activism is something that, you know, that people just label me as, but uh, that is something that uh, I'm not because there are always two approaches to you know, to uh, to solve problems, especially environmental problems. What yeah. I've coined very widely as, you know, that uh, the Greta Thunberg approach and the second is the Sir David Attenborough approach. Sure. So the Greta Thunberg approach is also very effective, but it's a route that I've not taken. Uh, that's more about doom and gloom and showing a post-apocalyptic scenario or shaming people into action. Sure. Which is effective in its own way, but that's not a route that I've taken. Uh, for me, it's more of the Sir David Attenborough approach of showcasing the beauty of this world, because at the end of the day, we only protect things that we love. We only love things that we understand. Yeah. And we only understand things that we are taught. And uh, I believe that, uh, you know, the Sir David Attenborough approach of, of making everyone fall in love with the natural world. And hopefully through that love, we will find it within ourselves to protect, to conserve and to sustain. Yeah. So, uh, so I've taken that second route, which is about advocacy. And that's the reason why I work a lot with the United Nations. I'm the Global Goodwill Ambassador. Yeah. Simply because the United Nations always believes not in activism, but in working with people and working with governments, even if even if officials, let's say in the United Nations, do not agree with a particular government, they will never work against the government. Yeah. They will always work with a government or with uh, with an entity. Like, for example, in Afghanistan, you've got the Taliban, which is uh, which is in, in rule in power over there. But yeah. even then, you still have a UNICEF field office, you've got a UNHCR field office, you've got all these field offices over there simply because whoever is in charge, you know, we will work with you because we want to work for the betterment of everybody. So yeah. we do not want to neglect your people just because we don't like you, you know. So, it's so that's... Great, uh, it's a great way to constantly collaborate with people. And, and like you no, said... It's, it's all about the spirit of collaboration yeah. at the end of the day, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to work with people, figure out what their motivations are. So when it comes to music itself, as I said, uh, you know, that music is an extension of me. So yeah. whatever I feel strongly about, that's what I'm going to be making music on. So it's yeah. not a conscious effort to create advocacy through my music. It's not a conscious effort to, uh, you know, or an aha moment that, you know, that my music 
is about uh, spreading this particular message or whatever. It's it's just about what I want to communicate. Mm. Instead of talking, I communicate through my music. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Grammy Award-winning musician Ricky Cage. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, I am Odyssey dance artist Bijoyani Satpathi, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's now rejoin our conversation with Ricky Gage. Let me ask you one thing. If you, if in that same kind of elegant way that you described the Greta Thunberg versus the Sir David Attenborough approach, if you really think about the kind of love and the joy that's behind sharing the love for the natural world in that, how do you perhaps... Also, if there's a way to do this, or perhaps it's it's not meant to necessarily be the vehicle for this, but how do you prescriptively address urgency or mood or act- activity, perhaps, in that same spirit of loving the natural world so that particularly through your music, which isn't always anthem-based or lyrically-based, can still produce not just great love, but perhaps even momentum to spread awareness and consciousness and and better outcomes for that matter. So the thing is that uh, uh, we as human beings, when we interact with different people or different, uh, uh, you know, species also, when we interact with different people, we automatically change our method of interaction. Like, for example, if you're talking to a child, I wouldn't be talking the way that I'm talking to you. You know, there would be a certain cuteness that I would try to bring in my voice. Sure. Uh, my language would change. And this would be an automatic thing. It would be a conscious effort of me trying to communicate with a child. Automatically, my body language changes. My voice changes. The kind of words that I use changes. The way that I look at a child changes. It's the same thing. It, it's, it's different for different people. And it's the same thing when I'm performing for musicians or when I'm creating music for musicians. It's not a conscious effort to write music in a different way. Yeah. But it's just that it automatically happens because we as human beings, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we bridge a divide between us and the person we are communicating with in a different style. And that is a natural way of doing things. So, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, that uh, when I communicate with people through my advocacy, through music, it's different when I'm communicating with world leaders, like, for example, with my performances at the United Nations or to Fortune 500 companies or, you know, or people who can bring about mass change uh, within their own capacities. And it's completely different when I'm communicating with uh, with mass audiences at music festivals, like audiences about 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 people at yeah. music festivals or it's completely different when I'm communicating with children. Yeah. Uh, so there are different ways of communicating uh, the same message, but in different styles. So I believe that with all the problems that we face on our planet today, uh, I believe that uh, you know uh, when it comes to when it comes to a ground up approach, I believe that the biggest threat is the constant thought that we have that somebody else will make a difference. Yeah. Because we're always waiting for governments, for intergovernmental bodies, for corporations, for leaders to make a difference. When everybody talks about changing the world, 
people very rarely talk about changing themselves and i believe that that is the biggest threat to us as a species yeah that we very rarely talk about changing ourselves and that's not because we're evil people it's just because that's how the systems are built around us yeah that uh, we just uh, uh, the way the, the way that we've been taught uh, through our schools the way that the education system has made us believe that uh, that you know that we are just not powerful enough to bring about change within our own capacities and it's always governments that can bring about change yeah. even the united nations also is at fault at this because when the united nations talks about their sustainability goals they talk about this huge overarching goals like zero poverty zero hunger climate action protecting all life on land protecting all life on water so when a common person looks at that and says that and reads that okay we have to protect all life on land how 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 am i going to do that you right, know right so 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 that's what i try to do through my concerts that try to empower everyone to believe that the small tiny incremental changes that they make within their own lives can actually make a difference and that is all that matters nobody needs to change the world nobody needs to bring about change on a mass level nobody needs to change nobody needs to like you know be a world leader but uh, what you need to do is that just figure out these small tiny incremental changes that you can do within your own life like you know reducing your use of single use plastics or yeah. you know or uh, or uh, you know using public transportation whenever it's suitable for us sure. uh, reducing our consumption of meat you know these are the small things that we can possibly do not subscribing to fast fashion yeah uh, you know that we can do within our own capacities uh, you know to actually make a difference and that is all that matters is so, is this the is yep. this the motivation and the particular fuel and driver behind when trying to uh, coalesce the music and the community around a movement like lifestyle for the environment that you're working on with the prime minister yeah the, so the prime minister's mission of uh, of lifestyle for the environment life is actually a really really good mission because this is something that i've been talking about for years yeah. and it's very nice that this is going mainstream right now because of the prime minister's vision on life sure now the thing is that uh, i believe that you know that uh, uh, currently we have something called as a use and throw economy yeah. where everything is about being disposable like plastics itself plastics were invented as a miracle material in the early 1900s simply because it could not it was not biodegradable and it would not wash away yeah you know and uh, and for some reason we as human beings have decided that a non biodegradable material is disposable which mm. absolutely makes no sense right because uh, if it's if it's non biodegradable that means that it needs to be reusable but we've just made it disposable yeah so if you think about it every single plastic toothbrush every single plastic straw every single plastic bag that we've ever thrown away in our entire life exists in some form or the other on this planet maybe broken down into small pieces but yeah. it exists somewhere yeah and uh, 100 million sea animals die every single year yeah uh, just from consuming uh, plastics in their diet you know and uh, and uh, 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 1 million seabirds die every single year because their intestines are lined with plastic yeah so that's how bad this thing and in fact we human beings uh, we consume a credit card size piece of plastic uh or rather that's on an average we uh, we consume one credit card size uh, amount of plastic every single month and yeah. that is just through our food system you know so so that's what we need to do we need to uh, we need to understand that it is cause i mean that there is uh, every action of ours has got consequence yeah. like a very quick example that i can give you is that uh, in 2020 when the pandemic had just started there was this very powerful image that had captured everybody's imagination all over the world it was this dead female pregnant elephant yeah uh you know who was uh, uh, who died in the uh, died while standing in the middle of a lake in kerala 
Uh, and this was a very powerful image. It was showcased in pretty much every single uh, newspaper, every single publication all over the world, whether it's LA Times or sure. Los Angeles Times, yeah, or, or New York Times or BBC, CNN, everywhere yeah. uh, in the world. And it is a very powerful image because, you know, uh, what happened was that the story behind it is that this uh, pregnant female elephant, she walked out of the forest in search of food and she got into this farmland and uh, she ate this pineapple fruit. And little did she know that the farmer had laden the fruit with explosives and it exploded in her mouth oh, uh, fatally. Uh, so while she, she was wobbling around and she was dying and she walked all the way to a lake and she stood right in the middle of the lake and she died over there. And it mm. was a very powerful image, as I said. And of course, there were reactions from all over the world that right. the farmer needs to be punished. The farmer needs to be hung upside down. The farmer needs to be killed or beheaded or, you know, or uh, put into jail for the rest yeah. of uh, his life. And, uh, but... What we uh, do not realize is that we as city people or living all over the world, we need to look inwards that this is completely our fault because if we do not have electricity for three or four minutes, we are so inconvenienced. If we if the new iPhone comes out and they do not make enough of the iPhone, we are so inconvenienced that why can't they make more of these right, phones? Right. Where are all these minerals coming from like silica, iron, uh, nickel, cadmium, lithium? Where is all that yeah. coming from? Where is all the, the coal coming from yeah. for electricity? Yeah. Digging up the forest. So our consumption patterns are destroying the food sources of this poor elephant. Yeah. And this elephant has no other choice but to walk out of the forest. And then the elephant ends up going to a farmland. And the farmer has to make this ridiculous and punishable offense of, uh, of actually protecting his or her uh, livelihoods and his or her family, the lives of his or her family, and has to put explosives in the fruit. And uh, because of this, the elephant dies. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and all of us are responsible for this, you know. So our actions have got consequences in very profound ways that we ourselves do not experience. You know, this this example is such a powerful one of the consumption chain and one that, uh, you know, certainly you speak so passionately about. I'm curious for you, every single time you have a conversation like this, um, every single time you make music and you collaborate with others, is that is that constantly a driver to and to to really really en enact change on a personal level not just for people having one-on-one -on -one conversations with you but hopefully for all your audiences but true but the thing is that one uh it's very important to draw that fine line between you know advocacy and just being pedantic you know yeah uh, because uh, what happens is that uh, when you when one is too preachy again you are driving away people rather than bringing people together sure sure and uh so that's why what I try to do is that, uh, of course, I live the life that is extremely important. And it's very yeah. important for me to, you know, to, to practice certain things and like, you know, and sort of like, you know, in my own small way and in my own capacity, in my own tiny capacity to lead by example, that yeah. becomes really important. So a few things that I do within my own life is that I do not subscribe to fast fashion at all. Yeah. Uh, the shirt that you see me wearing, you will see me wearing in many, many pictures on my Instagram. Sure. At any given point of time, I only have 11 sets of clothes. And uh, that's all. Uh, so uh, I do not. Uh, so like, for example, the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, last year when I won my Grammy in 2022, I wore a blue Sherwani and mm. I ended up wearing that same Sherwani for about 40 concerts after that. Right. I retired that Sherwani finally when it actually tore. This year I wore another cream Sherwani and already I finished 11 concerts in that Sherwani. So I uh, so basically I do not mind if my in fact, I double down on that, that, you know, it's important to have the same clothes repeatedly on your Instagram, on your social media, because the earth 
does not remember what you've worn, but the earth definitely remembers how you've treated it. You know, that's uh, that's extremely important. And fashion can be fashionable more than once. Yeah. The second thing that I do is that I don't own a car. I use public transportation because if I'm using public transportation when I'm traveling to different cities and countries, then may as well do that in my own city. And why have a car? I know there is this whole debate about electric mobility and whether fossil fuels are fine or whether hybrid cars are fine or whether uh, the manufacturing process of electric mobility is is uh, is good for our carbon footprint and things like sure. that. Uh, so I do believe that electric cars are the future because yeah. they're getting better and better and uh, you know and the carbon footprint of the manufacturing process is getting lower and lower as we move yeah. forward and as we reach a critical mass. But at the same time, I think the best thing would be just not to have a car. You know that would be the most uh, environmental friendly, and you know, and just uh, just use public transportation. Sure. And 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 try to uh, try to request our leaders to give us better and better, uh, you know, public transportation. Yeah. yeah. The next thing is that I have a meat-free diet, and uh, yeah. that is something that everybody has to figure out for themselves because there's a huge cultural significance with this. So that's why one just needs to understand what is the best route uh, uh, when it comes to this. And uh, and lastly is that what I spoke about right in the beginning, I get my carbon footprint audited every quarter. So at the end of every quarter, once my carbon footprint is audited, and uh, this is like a complete 360 degree approach towards yeah. auditing my carbon footprint, I get uh, I uh, I have a meeting with uh, some really good professionals to figure out how I can reduce my carbon footprint for, for the next quarter. What is it that I can do? Uh, to make changes uh, which are practical enough for me and uh, and based on that I reduce my carbon footprint in the next quarter and I also do what I mentioned I offset my carbon footprint to tree plantations and investment in renewable energy companies so these are the things that I follow and I try to uh, you know encourage people uh, you know to uh, yeah. uh, to figure out what is it that they can do within their own lives uh, you know uh, uh, and what is practical enough for everybody to do because the systems are built against the environment right now. So it's very difficult to follow a lot of things. I, I love the kind of holistic, like you said, holistic analysis, not just the holistic activity, but the holistic analysis that you know you, you try and make sure that you're always analyzing this. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Ricky Gage. My name is Lakpa Sherba. I'm Summit Mountain Everest 10 times. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar. And let's now rejoin our conversation with musician, composer, and environmental advocate, Ricky Cage. I, I want to pivot very quickly to the music. Um, you know, for, for a second, you mentioned that you have such that foundation in composition and, and scoring and marketing with jingles and, and understanding how that's actually helped develop and in some ways inform your, your current, uh, you know, creative process. Yet, yet um, I'm imagining that it's a, a challenging wedge for niche music and for the music that you create uh, to be in the backdrop um, or forefront, uh, however way one actually thinks about it, in the Hindi movie music landscape, especially in the consumer appetite 
for a place like like India and even the global you know market out there. Does the appetite or the trend of the consumer ever drive the question of the semantics, if you will, of being a musician versus a craftsman? Do you have to constantly sort of examine how this works or is it simply a, you know what, that just doesn't matter. Making music you love is always at the core. So, yeah, so for me, uh, from uh, if I have to speak personally, then uh, for me, it's just about creating art. Like if you look at an artist like uh, like from a completely different medium, like a Vincent van Gogh, for example. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vincent van Gogh, if uh, he's making a new piece of art, uh, then I cannot even imagine him going to all the neighboring art galleries and, you know, and uh, figuring out, you know, that what is everybody else doing? Right. Uh, what's popular? What's, uh, what's, just... what's popular? What's in yeah. vogue right now? Okay, let me do something similar. Yeah. So he would just dig deep into his own soul and, you know, and create a piece of art that defines him as a person. And, uh, you know, defines his state of mind at that particular point in time. Yeah. And I believe that music also is an art form. And it's, uh, it's, it's very important to stay true to who you are as a musician. At least that's what I feel personally. Yeah. That, um, and uh, like coming back to the example of Vincent Van Gogh, if I wanted to know what kind of a person he was, um, I'm probably not going to read a book about him. I'm probably <laughs> going to just look at his art and judge what kind of a person he was by just looking at his art. But the thing is that if you look at bo the Bollywood music industry in India, uh, everybody is only making love songs or what they call item songs, you know, like the, the dance songs or, you know, the songs which end up itemizing or objectifying, you know, women. Uh, they're sort of mildly misogynistic. Um, and I believe that the composers and the lyrics writers who are actually making these songs are not like that in real life. Uh, they definitely respect women. They, uh, they've got very good family lives. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, they are heavily into gender equality, uh, you know, and uh, so I believe that uh, and they definitely do not objectify women in their own lives. Is there is there product then a different art because? Of... No, so that's what I'm coming to that. Yeah. So I believe that uh, a lot of people are making music and making art that they did themselves do not listen to. Mm. And I believe that, yes, uh, you know, that uh, these people are looking at music as being more of a job. Mm. But for me, that does not excite me because then I would have probably been an engineer or, or been in, you know, been doing something that I anyway do not like, you know, so rather than uh, right. because if I'm in a field of, uh, of art, which I, which is a, which is my passion, then within that field of art, I want to do things that are passionate, that I'm passionate about yeah. because many times people do become artists and it's the dream to become artists, but within that uh, within that art form, they're not creating art that that they're proud of, yeah. or they themselves listen to, or they themselves enjoy, and that is a little bit of a problem. And of course, now people know that these composers and these Bollywood composers are making these, you know, these misogynistic songs or you know these item songs uh, because they're paid to make it. Yeah. But soon that is going to become a part of their personality because that is what is going to define them, um, like. Uh, uh, I mean that when you just run a search for like because now in the era of the internet you'd run a search for the composer's name uh, quicker than their own bio and quicker than their own personal life their song shows up and uh, you know and the song ends up defining you as a person mm. and uh, you know and I believe that uh, I would rather be uh, lesser known for the music that defines me as a person uh, rather than being extremely well known uh, for a song that uh, that absolutely does not define me as a person and or for a song that uh, that, you know, that uh, would be the opposite of what defines me. I, I want to ask you something that 
kind of just strikes me as you talk about that. Do you think that, I mean, I'm, I'm a novice when it comes to uh, the music that is ambient or, or new age as perhaps it's, it's genre is called. But when I, I think I, I know the answer to this, but I'm just curious what you have to think, what you have to say about this. Do people misconceive that ambient or new age or world music um, do they misconceive it as being more passive or more um, mood oriented rather than an active or vigorous commercial discipline like some of these other genres of music? Is that just a, is that a, it's not a misconception. Uh, uh, new age music and world music or global music, all these genres of music, they can be passive and they can be uh, involving. Yeah. So there are some people who prefer it to be passive, like for example, uh, some great composers like Brian Eno, Kitaro. Yeah. Uh, there are a, a bunch of them, you know, the, who who uh, create new age music and world music and sort of like you know these global music genres as being very passive because they believe that they want to just elevate uh, the mood of a person, sure, rather than rather than it being participative. And for them, they feel that their music is unsuccessful if while playing. Uh, while 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 playing back music, if if a member of the audience actually gets involved and actually looks at the music system or looks at uh, looks in the direction of uh, the source of music, that would be a failure in their part. Yeah. Uh, so that's how they look at it. That it has to be completely uninvolving. It has to be background music, and it should just elevate the mood. Yeah. So there are many of them, like Steve Roach and many uh, ambient artists who make this kind of music. Stephen Halpern and and all of them make extremely good music, and I love listening to. Uh, their music. Uh, I'm huge fans of their music. Yeah. And then you have the others like the the Peter Gabriels, the Enyas, the um, uh, the Yanis, yeah. where you know the music is a little more uh, uh, the little music is a little more participative. Yeah. In terms of like you know beautiful vocals and lyrics and you know and uh, the music actually involves you. Sometimes it's even dancey. Yeah. The music, you know. The, so so it's in different styles and I dabble in both styles yeah. because I like both styles of music. So it depends upon my mood at that particular point in sure. time when I'm actually creating the music. Yeah. You know, when new listeners are hearing your work for the first time or even your uh, longtime fans are, are hearing your new music or they're watching you perform, how do you, how do you hope they feel afterwards? And what do you hope they're saying? So for me, it's it's all about entertainment. So uh, for me, the most important thing is that I'm hoping because again, I have to find my audience. So it's very important that, you know, that uh, for me at my concerts, it's very important that the audience that shows up for my concerts, again, is not a one size fits all approach, but it's an audience that has been educated as to what my music is all about. That is very, very important. So it has to be an audience that knows what to expect yeah. uh, at a concert of mine. So for me, the most important thing is that that audience that shows up for my concert is thoroughly entertained. Yeah. That is first and foremost, because if they're not entertained, the message is meaningless. Yeah. So it is very important that first and foremost, that they're extremely entertained and they absolutely love the music. They love the, the talent behind the music. They love, they love the musicality of the music, all of that. And, uh, and at the same time, as I mentioned, first and foremost, they're very entertained. Yeah. But when they go back home or uh, once the music is finished and once the sound is off, uh, they have something very strong to think about. Um, Ricky, well, I'm sad that this conversation's ending, but I'm grateful for all that you're doing, all the awareness that you're galvanizing 
both through your music and uh, through your messages and really sort of speaking and, and creating from the heart. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, what a treat. And I hope we can visit with you again down the road. Thank you so much. All my very best. Thanks so much. And please check out rickycage.com. Bhumi, or Mother Earth, deserves our full undivided attention every single day. So please be thoughtful about what you consume, what you produce, and what you conserve. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.